The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Ten seconds. Firing torpedoes. Sensors locked on probes. Torpedoes have reached their targets. Resonators activated. Harmonic sequences have begun. What are you doing? We are attempting to quiet your planet. If we succeed, there will be no more quakes, no more volcanoes. Ensign, when should the results be known? This should happen very quickly, sir. Captain, sensors indicate a planet-wide reduction in tectonic stress levels. It worked. We did it. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September fourteenth, twenty seventeen. I'm Bob Metz, and I'm Robert Vaughn, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color. Color into black and white Under the clothes, Everything will be alright We are joined in studio today with someone who's become quite a regular on our show, and that is Dave Plum, author of Climate Hope. Or I understand, Dave, you might be changing the name of that book shortly. <laughs> it seems in today's world, hope is a hard thing to sell. Uh, people don't really want to hear messages of hope. Uh, they want to hear about Doom and gloom. Doom and gloom. You <laughs> it know, sells huh? papers. Yeah, it seems so. Uh, but anyway, to get back to the title, I uh, think I need something that's a little catchier in terms of the the cover. So I've I've changed it. I've I've, I've got an image of the Earth uh, superimposed on the surface of Venus, and I put a big screw through it, so it looks like the Earth is screwed to the surface of Venus now. Instead of calling it climate home, I've calling it uh, inconveniently screwed with with the uh, screwed, the S on the screwed being a dollar sign, because really the way we're so screwed is financially. That's the main thing that uh, the inconvenient truth, paranoia, wave of paranoia that it resulted from an inconvenient truth, the main thing it's done is screwed us financially. So, Well, uh, there's our officials from the United Nations uh, panel on climate change who have come out and deliberately said that the intent of this climate change terrorism and hysteria is specifically to destroy capitalism and to redistribute wealth. It has nothing to do with climate, and the United Nations has admitted that. So your title is apt. And before we get our conversation underway today, we want to remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Now, when you last wrote us, Dave, you were talking about Earth's climate history, because as you wrote, and this is, this, this is actually a message we've been saying ourselves with respect to human history, that history serves as a roadmap to the future. If you don't know where you've been, it's hard to know where you're going. Where do you think we should start this conversation? I know uh, it's, it's carrying on from previous conversations we've had, but we want to go in a new direction. Yeah, I think uh, I talked about the four cornerstones on which all this climate change paranoia is built. 
the cornerstones of the greenhouse effect, what's happening in Antarctica, what's happening in Venus compared with Earth, and uh, the other one is supercontinents. Now, we've talked about Antarctica and Venus uh, a fair bit on previous shows, and we can uh, quickly review that. Uh, the greenhouse effect we really haven't got into very much. We've mentioned it a number of times, but we haven't really taken a really good close look at how the greenhouse effect works compared with how Earth's atmosphere actually works. And uh, we've touched on a few things like uh, so you're lips, saying that you're large saying igneous that... provinces in terms of supercontinents and that, but there's, there's a lot of history there that uh, when I got researching this, I learned probably as much about Earth's natural history as I did about climate. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that the greenhouse effect, as understood as a scientific principle, is something different from the way it actually works in reality? Is that what you're suggesting? No, the greenhouse effect works as advertised in reality with uh, shortwave uh, high-energy ultraviolet radiation coming in and hitting the surface and getting converted into radiant energy, which then goes back out, and it's a long wavelength. Uh, much lower energy radiation that gets trapped by greenhouse gases. I mean, there's no dispute that the science on that is settled. And when you hear these climate change people say that the science is settled, that's the science they're talking about. And I agree with it. It makes perfect sense. The problem is that they use this as a greenhouse effect to relate uh, what happens in a greenhouse to what happens in Earth's atmosphere, and what happens in a greenhouse is totally and entirely different from what happens in Earth's atmosphere. Well, this is what I was meaning, like the application of, of a valid principle to a situation where apparently it doesn't exactly the apply. The analogy makes no sense at all, if okay. you understand, if you understand really what goes on in a greenhouse. And I think people need to understand that this is a totally inappropriate analogy. Well, I've so been in you, a greenhouse before, so I know how hot it can get. <laughs> yeah, but when you hear somebody talking about the greenhouse effect and applying that to his climate, you know that you're talking to somebody who has no idea what he's talking about, really. He's just parroting something that the IPCC and Al Gore and some other people have said. Are people still using the greenhouse effect? You know, the, the, I, 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 was, I was going through a lot of newspaper clippings of, of late, and the whole discussion about climate change really has dropped. It's, it's not there anymore as, as far as the scientific part of it goes. It's like there's no conversation going on anymore. Yeah, maybe the message is getting through that it's all BS. Well, it hasn't stopped our politicians from it acting on... It hasn't stopped on. the politicians, <laughs> but politicians are real slow, real slow to pick up on well, truth. <laughs> the, the, the goal of a politician is not to affect the climate or to repair the climate. It is to get it reelected. That is simply <laughs> the only goal that they have. Anything they tell you otherwise is a lie. Yes, and they have to scare you into believing something that they're going to fix for you to get reelected. So what That's they do what is, of course, about. poll the people to see how they feel about a, a certain tactic like carbon taxes or carbon sequestering or you name it. And if the people generally uh, agree with the carbon tax, that's what they'll do. Yeah. If they don't, then they won't. And it's the only reason people generally agree with the carbon tax is because they don't understand what's going on with climate. You know, uh, we had uh, Christopher Essex on here a few months back, and he started off the conversation about climate change by saying, when I sit down with a reporter, I ask him or her, what do you know about the Navier-Stokes equations? And if they can't give me even a cursory answer, like... Then I say, well, why do I want to get into a conversation with you about climate change? Yeah. And of course, the Navier-Stokes equations are uh, the, the formulas for uh, determining fluid dynamics. Uh, and an atmosphere in that sense will be considered the fluid. So, I mean, it's from a scientific point of view, the layperson really knows squat about yeah. climate change. 
And they don't understand that the Navier-Stokes equations can't help us solve what's going on in the climate because it's so chaotic. Yes. I mean, they're, they're differential equations that deal with chaos, and we don't understand chaos. We don't know how to handle it. We so, can't I even mean, measure. We have these equations, but the problem with the Navier-Stokes equations is we have the equations, but we can't solve them. We can't, we can't even determine the temperature of the planet's atmosphere. Yeah. As, as Chris Essig said, you know, what's the temperature of this room we're sitting in? And, of course, the answer is, well, where's your, where's your thermometer? And you yeah. Know, yeah. Is it by is the it, window? Is it by the door? Is it by up the, the ceiling or on the floor? On the light, you know? And that's, that brings us back to this greenhouse effect thing. And I've got a chart here that where you've got physical characteristics in the natural greenhouse and Earth's atmosphere. And when you talk about the aerial extent, how big a greenhouse is, well, a greenhouse, the really big ones, the biggest ones get up to about 25,000 square feet or 2,300 square meters, where the Earth's atmosphere is the entire planet. So in terms of being an analogous, there's no analogy there. I think perhaps, I mean, just to um, play devil's advocate here for a minute, Dave, do you think perhaps it was a high school scientific way of trying to put it in terms uh, a high school student might understand? You have uh, energy coming in, it bounces off the, the ground and is radiated back up in infrared, and then it's retained by clouds, for example. That's a sort of uh, the bouncing back and forth of the energy uh, in, in the same way that a greenhouse would affect it. Uh, so it's a rough approximation. Yes and no, somewhat. The only problem is that it doesn't apply. I mean, a greenhouse is a physically enclosed area. It's yes. got it's got walls and a roof. True enough. Okay. The earth does not have walls and a roof. I mean, you can make an argument that it's got a roof because the roof is where the atmosphere ends, but it's a pretty leaky roof. I mean, <laughs> we lose 95,000 metric tons of hydrogen out through that roof every year. You know, so you can't really say it's an enclosed space like a greenhouse is. And I mean, the the highest greenhouse that I could find in researching was like 180 feet higher, 55 meters, whereas Earth's atmosphere, the upper limit of that is outer space. Another interesting thing I found was that if you have a greenhouse where you have atmospheric carbon dioxide that's sort of the ambient standard around 400 parts per million through the night, when the sun comes up in the morning and the plants start to photosynthesize in that greenhouse, they draw down that 400 parts per million of of carbon dioxide. They draw that down to 200 parts per million real quick. And at 200 parts per million, plants can subsist, but they don't have enough food for growth and reproduction. Okay, that all they can do is just just live. I understand that uh, and, and, horticulturists and, actually pump CO two into yes, greenhouses. That's the point. They use supplemental CO two in a greenhouse, and for a lot of greenhouse plants, what they have found the best level of CO two to be is a thousand parts per million. To be the most efficient photosynthetic process. That's the best point at which plants grow and reproduce. A thousand parts per million. So we're all, we've got our knickers in and out about Earth's atmosphere being at 400 parts per million. And we're talking about the greenhouse effect and how harmful that is to have it going on in Earth's atmosphere. People that run greenhouses bring in supplemental CO2 and pump it up to two and a half times what the natural atmosphere is so that their plants will grow optimally. And my point is, if, if Earth's atmosphere were to increase up to a 1,000 parts per million, all we would do is optimize plant growth. Agriculture would benefit. Forestry would benefit. People would benefit. I mean, you'd have to cut your grass more often. But there would, you would have more 
relatively more oxygen in the atmosphere because photosynthesis, green things that create the oxygen, would, would really thrive at 1,000 parts per million. So in terms of, of the greenhouse effect and, and Earth's atmosphere, in terms of an analogy, it's, it's no all the way down the line. Mm. And, and when you get into a greenhouse, um, a greenhouse will have a relatively... Uh, homogeneous temperature if you wander around a greenhouse and we talked about wandering around this room and where the thermometer is in a greenhouse you might find a, a variance between the outer wall and someplace in the interior uh, depending on the outside temperature and whether it's sunny or dark you might find a variance of five or ten centigrade degrees if you wander around a greenhouse but if you were to wander around the entire earth in that same amount of time if you could do it you would find temperatures that would vary from like uh about plus 40 or plus 50 centigrade down to minus well the coldest temperature recorded in antarctica was nearly minus 90 degrees centigrade which is colder than it takes to solidify carbon dioxide so antarctica at times gets cold enough to actually have the carbon dioxide freeze into the air and form and form dry ice wow so we're talking a huge difference of what 80 uh, 160 170 more than that like degrees centigrade plus or minus where it's far different than you would find in a greenhouse the other thing that earth's atmosphere has that a greenhouse lacks an earth's atmosphere has wind lateral convection that draws heat energy away and the winds generally move from the equator out towards the poles now as they move towards the poles they draw heat energy away from the equator because that's where the sun hits the earth most directly and that's where the greatest amount of heat is is generated which is why the tropics are warm but those prevailing winds that move towards the poles draw the heat energy from the equatorial areas towards the polar areas. But as they move north and south, the rotation of the Earth also moves them sideways. It's called Coriolis effect. Mm-hmm. So you get this lateral movement away from the equator, and you get Coriolis effect. And all this is uh, thermodynamics. This is what the Navier-Stokes equations describe but can't really solve. You get ocean currents like El Nino, La Nina, and the Gulf Stream that do similar things in terms of drawing heat away from from the tropics towards the polar areas. You get jet streams. Which is why it went down to four degrees last Friday night. Yes, the temperatures, (laughs) uh, you know, on either side. And there's a a northern jet stream and a southern jet stream. And, And on the polar side, north and south of the jet stream, the temperatures are considerably cooler than they are on the uh, uh, equatorial side of the jet stream. Orographic lift plays a huge effect uh, in in Earth's atmosphere. And orographic lift is with water, with air coming in over bodies of of water. And we used California, I think, if we discussed this previously, drought in California. If the Pacific Ocean is warm enough offshore from California to put a lot of moisture into the air so that the air that comes in, and we know this from living in southern Ontario, uh, how often have you heard in the summer that it's not the heat, it's the humidity? Because we intrinsically understand <laughs> we understand living here um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that warm air is humid air because when it gets hotter, being surrounded by the Great Lakes, when it gets hot here, it gets really humid and it's like a sauna here. Whereas in the wintertime, it's so cold that you get static electricity in your rugs and it just makes it hard to breathe outside on a really cold winter day because it's too dry. So we understand just intuitively, the warm air is moist air and cold air is dry air. And with orographic lift, what happens is, is if the Pacific Ocean offshore from California is warm enough and enough evaporation is occurring 
over that Pacific Ocean. As the onshore breezes come in, they pick up a lot of moisture. They go up the Sierra Nevada mountainsides and they replenish reservoirs like Lake Tahoe and the Sierra Nevada snowpack, which is where California cities get their fresh water from. So when the Pacific Ocean cools down, uh, there's not enough evaporation. The onshore breezes don't have enough humidity in them. And as they go up the mountainside, and this, this, air being, this humid air being forced up the mountainside is referred to as orographic lift. And as the air gets higher up, it precipitates out as rain on the lower slopes and snow on the higher slopes. So if the Pacific Ocean's too cold offshore from California, you don't get the Sierra Nevada snowpack and Lake Tahoe being replenished. California experiences drought and everybody says, well, it's man-made global warming, or the opposite is true. What's what's true is that the Pacific Ocean's too cold. And last but not least, something else that, a, that an actual greenhouse does not have, that Earth has plenty of, and basically what's going to be the focus, I think, of our discussion today, is plate tectonics. And we've got volcanism, hydrothermal venting, we've got continental drift, and... Uh, uh, formation and breakup of supercontinents. None of that happens in a in, in a greenhouse. I and mean, let me put it this way: if you have a volcano in your greenhouse, <laughs> you don't have a greenhouse. You just have a volcano. That's so, right. so, bottom line of your entire presentation so far that in today's show is: let's just stop calling it the greenhouse effect because, in no way, is it analogous. No, there's there's no analogy there on any of those points with what happens in Earth's atmosphere. There are unconfirmed reports from Sydney, Australia today that the sky to the southeast in the direction of New Zealand was seen to erupt in flames. Communications from New Zealand, including deep sea cable, have stopped. And scientists are suggesting a CME may have breached the ozone, causing unforeseeable damage. What is certain is that until now, the human component of this solar storm has been the most unpredictable. Complete civil unrest has broken out in several countries, leading to the imposition of martial law. But as events in the Republic of Georgia and South Africa show, even military curfews have been ineffective against the near hysterical spread of panic and violence, as people fear the end of the world has arrived. Oh, that ain't snow, Mike. That's angel hair. Huh? We done died and gone to heaven. Where are we? I was afraid you might ask that, Captain. Lieutenant Turner here says we're in heaven. Mr. Cruz doesn't seem to agree. I myself would vote for Alaska. Alaska? It's a bad joke, my boy. I have no idea where we are. Did you get a report off the base? No, the radio's knocked out. We'll transmit and receive. Captain, are we back on Earth? Easy enough to find out. Larry, would you see if the artificial gravity is still working? Yeah, it's working. Turn it off. Point eight eight seven. And we're not on Earth. I tell you, we're in heaven. We could be almost anywhere. But what about Mars? Mars has polar snow caps. It also has a surface gravity of 0.38. We'd all be bouncing around like ping pong balls. 
about that hunch of yours, Professor? You still got it? It's no longer a hunch, Captain. I'm sure. We're on the planet Venus. What? Venus, planet. Planet. it's closest. Venus is 26 million miles from Earth. You don't just accidentally land on a planet 26 million miles away. That's what I would have said. But it appears all things are possible in space. We don't know how fast we were traveling. Nor how long we were unconscious. But of one thing I'm sure. This is Venus. Yeah, but Doc, what about all those things we learned at school? You know, the atmosphere of Venus is supposed to be unbreathable. The cloud layer is so thick that no light ever gets through. And with a surface temperature higher than the boiling point of water? Yes, I know. I subscribe to many of those theories myself. I even helped formulate some of them. But it appears I'm closer to the problem now. So we're in studio with Dave Plum. Dave, what's happened with Venus and the Antarctic since you were here last? <laughs> Nothing. <Yeah. laughs> Nothing that hasn't been going on for many millions of years. I thought I'd touch on this. We've discussed this at some length in previous episodes, but being that it's one of the cornerstones of the, the myths that surround global warming, I thought we should just quickly review them. And on Venus, what happened? We talked about the inverse square loss. So if you're twice as far from a heat source, you're actually getting one quarter as much heat, not half as much heat. And Neil deGrasse Tyson says that the reason Venus is so much hotter than Earth is not because it's closer to the sun, which is a total lie. And it means that this guy, who is supposedly a world-renowned astrophysicist, clearly doesn't understand the inverse square law. Either that or he does understand it, and he's lying to us. But on Venus, in its early days, it was so hot because it was so close to the sun, liquid water couldn't form. It was superheated steam. It didn't have a magnetic field to protect it. So the solar wind came along and carried away all the, all the hydrogen that Venus had in the first couple billion years of its life, Venus lost virtually all its hydrogen, except for the little bit that's locked up in the sulfuric acid clouds. So without hydrogen, oxygen still had to combine with something, and all that heat baked the carbon out of the rocks, and the only thing that was left for oxygen to combine with was carbon, so you've got an atmosphere that's principally CO2. And the reason Venus is not so hot is because its atmosphere is basically CO2. The reason Venus's atmosphere is CO2 is because it's so hot. So these people that are telling you about Venus and relating that to what can happen on Earth have the cart totally before the horse. And they're blowing smoke. They're blowing smoke, okay? I mean, they don't know what they're talking about. Actually, you know, yeah. I, 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 would, I would suggest that they do know what they're talking about in, for many of them. But as we've established before, the purpose of this conversation that people are having about Earth's climate is not about climate. It's not about science. It's about wealth redistribution. Exactly. So anybody who would lie to you deliberately saying that, oh, we're going to turn into a Venus if we keep on going with our carbon dioxide production, is lying to you for that purpose. Is that they're Marxists? <laughs> Whatever. It's, it's ideology. It's not science. Totally. Okay. Now, you said something about magnetic fields, Venus not having uh, magnetic fields. Is that right? Yeah, to generate a magnetic that, field, you need a planet, you need a rocky planet with a liquid metal core, and it needs to spin at a certain rate right. to generate now, a magnetic Now, what you're field. saying, though, is that that magnetic field is necessary to protect a planet from the sun, from the yes, sun's rain? Yes, because the magnetic field is, is it, a magnetic field deflects ionized radiation around a planet. If we didn't have a magnetic field here on Earth, life as we know it wouldn't be possible here on Earth because, Just too, because much, of that. too much ultraviolet, too much 
solar radiation would get through and sterilize the surface of the planet. And that field is caused by what's going on underneath us, It's right? caused by a liquid metal core. Our core, the inner core spins one way, the outer core spins another way, and it sets up a dynamo effect. And that dynamo effect puts a fairly powerful magnetic field far, wait, far wait away. Wait a minute. I was unaware. I did not realize they spun in two different directions. Yep. No, now you do. Now you well, know. Well, how, how does that, how the heck does that form? That seems counterintuitive in every way I, I could think of. <laughs> it's partly because Venus day is such a long day as well. It doesn't really rotate as a planet. Uh, what is it? 243. Yeah, 243. Venus turns yeah. once on its axis every 243 No, I understand, Earth but what about days. Earth? The interesting thing about Venus is that it goes around the sun more often than it turns once on its axis. Right. So a day on Venus is longer than a year on Venus. Okay. Understood. <laughs> it spins that slowly. I get that. But without spin, there's no magnetic field. Without the magnetic field, there's no protection from the ionizing radiation. And don't forget, Venus is so much closer to the sun that it gets nearly twice the intensity of solar radiation that Earth gets. So even if Earth were put in that orbit and into the same orbit as Venus, chances are its magnetic field wouldn't be strong enough to protect us from the from the ionizing radiation. And Earth likely would have lost all its hydrogen by mm-hmm. now, too. It would so, take it would take a magnetic field probably four times or more stronger than Earth has in that orbit, which is what is it, forty two million kilometers closer to the sun. So not only are you saying that we should stop using the words greenhouse effect to describe Earth's climate and uh, the heating of the Earth's climate, we should, we should stop comparing Earth to Venus when it comes to climate. It is absolute total nonsense. Yes, That's polite, we yes. And as far as what's going on in Antarctica, uh, Al Gore told us about uh, the greenhouse effect, and he said, you know, things are warming up in Antarctica, and maybe they are. Because the thing you have to realize is that Antarctica is the coldest place there is on Earth. As I said, the lowest recorded temperature there is is colder than the freezing point of carbon, uh, carbon dioxide. It'll literally freeze carbon dioxide out of the air and, and put dry ice on the ground uh, on, on at the coldest times in Antarctica. Antarctica is so cold it's got no place to go but up in terms of getting warmer. Colder than Hillary Clinton's heart. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Al Gore told us this, and he said it's because we're burning fossil fuel half a world away in the northern hemisphere, and we have to stop burning fossil fuel. What he didn't tell us about is the undersea volcanoes near the Sandwich Arc, which is where the South Sandwich Islands are, which are close to the Antarctic Peninsula, where he showed us ice calving off the uh, Larsen B ice shelf. And the other thing he didn't tell us about is all along the edge of that Antarctic Peninsula, where, where this ice is calving off, all along the edge of that Antarctic Peninsula, there's a tectonic plate that's called the uh, Scotia Plate. And it comes up against, meets up against the Antarctic plate there, but it's a divergent plate, which means that at that boundary, these plates are pulling apart. And where the plates are pulling apart, it it opens a crack in the Earth's surface down into the hot magma underneath. And all along the South Scotia Ridge, which lies just offshore from the Antarctic, Arctic Peninsula, we've got all these hydrothermal vents. Now, these are vents that are putting greenhouse gas into the ocean there at 400 degrees centigrade. And to me, that's like putting a burner under a pot of cold water on the stove 
and turning the burner on, okay, and watching the water warm up and saying, well, it's because uh, the burner is a gas burner and it's, and it's putting more carbon dioxide into the air as the fossil fuel burns and there's sunshine coming in through the window and the water's warming up because of that. Whereas I tend to think it's the heat of the burner under the pot that's warming up the water. And those are the heating elements that are represented by those hydrothermal vents in Antarctica. Al Gore doesn't tell us about that. What it's not for sure is us idling our cars at the Tim Hortons here in Ontario. Yes. Yes, okay. yes. The inconvenient <laughs> truth is, in, in terms of what's going on in Antarctica, is again, total nonsense. My guess is that was an electronic signal of some kind. Electronic signal? Did the hackles cut through the back of my shirt, Mike? Mm, they came up high enough. Let's get this straight, Doctor. Electronic signals could only be made by humans. Not necessarily humans, Neil. Intelligent beings, perhaps, yes, but who knows what form they may have taken could be insects with tremendous mental powers. You know, the doctor's right. Once I read one of those Thriller Dollar magazines that told all about the life on the planet Venus. Oh. Had these little bitty guys about so high, green bodies, green blood, heads like king-sized turnips. Had beautiful eyes, though, waving around on the end of two-foot feelers. You can see the advantage, Mike. All they had to do was bend them around behind their head, and they can see what's sneaking up on them. an earthquake. So did that. The essentialists. You should see them all run. I think they finally realized that the party's over. Increase the feedback in the tectonic stress regulators. If I do, there won't be a building left standing on this part of Ryza. It might be a good idea to head to the spaceport. Or at least get out of this room. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived, not just for your listening enjoyment and convenience, but also as a record of our dedication, consistency, and principled approach to the discussion of all things just right about freedom and capitalism, and hopefully today also about climate change. We're in studio with guest Dave Plum. Dave, we were going to carry on the conversation into a different area from where we left. Yeah, I think uh, we'd want to get into uh, what I wanted to get into today with supercontinents, basically, because that's something we really haven't talked much about at all in in past episodes. And supercontinents. Uh, so to, is, to is North America a supercontinent? No, there's no supercontinents right now. There's none. There's none. Okay, so there's none. Not at the moment. We're just a continent then. We're just a continent. And Most it, people will recognize a supercontinent if I said Pangaea. Yeah. To go back to the beginning, okay, well, we started, we, we, we started with talking about plate tectonics uh, in, in relation to Antarctica, and I mentioned this divergent South Scotia ridge. Now, a ridge is a place where two tectonic plates are coming apart and magma is welling up and building a, a ridge, but a lot of heat and greenhouse gas comes up along with that, and the Scotia plate lies just north of the Antarctic plate. So this divergent ridge along the Antarctic Peninsula is called the South Scotia Ridge. And if you don't know about what goes on in the South Scotia Ridge, 
you don't really know much about what goes on in Antarctica, Antarctica in terms of climate. But these kinds of ridges um, are happening all over the place. You've got the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and uh, basically there's a, it's like stitching on the surface of a, of a baseball. It's a 65,000-kilometer uh, string of volcanoes that runs all the way around the Earth. And the only place where you see this come above the surface of the Earth to any great extent is in Iceland, and it's called the Mid-Ocean Ridge. And the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is part of the Mid-Ocean Ridge, but the Mid-Ocean Ridge goes all over the world. And when you look at all these volcanoes and everything erupting in Iceland, there are places that we don't even know about in the other 60-some thousand kilometers of that Mid-Ocean Ridge deep underwater where that's also happening. And we don't factor that into the climate models at all because we don't know about it. But with all this, uh, what's happening... That that, that alone is an interesting statement, because I think a lot of people would have assumed that with all our technology today and our, you know, going into space and and mapping the planet from space, that we would know about these things. Isn't there some way that... that, Well, we know of the Mid-Ocean Ridge, and we have mapped parts of it. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge is fairly well mapped, but a lot of places like in the um, more polar regions were... There's a lot of ice cover, and the environment, it's a lot deeper, and the environment is less hospitable. We, we know where it is. We just don't know what's going on there. Mm. So, so this is a problem, I think, in terms of understanding Earth's climate because there's so much heat. The surface of the sun is 5,500 degrees centigrade, okay? The core of the Earth is 5,500 degrees centigrade. So, in effect, we have a miniature sun at the core of our planet. And by the time it gets up to where it's just hot magma under the surface of the crust, it's down to about 1,000 degrees centigrade, but it's still pretty hot. Uh, And that heat just keeps on coming up year after year, and a lot of it's leaking out through this 65,000 kilometers of mid-ocean ridge. And not only do we have mid-ocean ridge where there's a lot of heat leakage, but we have uh, other tectonic boundaries, uh, which are subduction zones. And this is where one tectonic plate is sliding underneath another tectonic plate. And what's happening right now is that the Atlantic Ocean, over the course of time, is getting wider. The Pacific Ocean is disappearing. Okay? If you look at a map, you can sort of see how what South America almost seemed to have fit into Africa there. It did at one time, and that was what Bob was talking about in Mm -hmm. terms of Pangaea. Okay, that was the last supercontinent. The Pacific Ocean is disappearing. It's going to take 250 to 300 million years before the Americas collide with Asia. And the next supercontinent has already been given the imaginative name of Am-Asia. Am-Erica-Asia. Because it's going to be a, a collision between those two. The Pacific Ocean contains something like about half of the world's water. And it's a much deeper ocean than all the other oceans of the world. So as that Pacific Ocean disappears, that big hole gets filled in, all that water has to go somewhere. And I did a calculation a while ago that tells me that if all the water that's in the Pacific Ocean were to transfer into the other oceans, when the Pacific Ocean disappears, it will cause all the other oceans to rise by 317 meters. That's a lot of rise. That's well, like, will it really? Because that's a thousand and forty-six feet. If that's caused by a continent drift, wouldn't the water just shift around to the other side of the continent? In, yes, in a, into a shallower ocean. Oh, I see. Because the, and half of the world's water is going to shift into shallower oceans ah. that are only like eighty percent, seventy-five or eighty percent as deep as the Pacific Ocean. So we're going to become much more of a water planet. Yes. In the future. Ah. Yes, inevitably, because that huge hole that's the Pacific Ocean that contains half our water is disappearing. Now, this is going to take a few hundred million years. And, and the calculation I, I did said it's going, it's, going to raise, <laughs> it's going to raise sea levels worldwide 
in the oceans that will remain, and there won't be oceans, there will be an ocean, because a supercontinent, by definition, is one large landmass with all the continents mm-hmm. clumped together, and that's what it's going to come to. So the ocean that's, that's left, being much shallower than the Pacific is, the water level in that ocean is going to rise 317 meters, which I think is a little over 1,000, 1,046 feet or something like that. But it's a slow process, a few hundred million years. The calculation I did, I think, on a quarter of a billion years for this to happen, I think it is a, means that it's going to rise a millimeter every 800 and some odd years. So in, in, in the course of a human lifetime, we're not going to be able to measure it. But it's happening. And the other thing to consider is that as all that water's transferring out of the Pacific into these other oceans, it is not only transferring volume of water, it's transferring mass because water is very heavy, and as that mass transfers, it inevitably will weigh down the ocean beds in these other oceans, which will drag down continental shelves, which will exacerbate the sea level rise area at coastlines, because the continental shelves are going to be depressed. And it's also going to transfer a lot of heat energy, because water has temperature warmer or colder so a lot of thermal transfer is going to happen as well and we don't know what the effects of all this is going to be that earth is losing annually every year 95,000 metric tons of hydrogen to outer space also every year earth gains 40,000 metric tons of space debris micrometeorites mm-hmm. and other detritus that falling falls, into that our gravity well here yeah that falls into our gravity well from outer space so over the course of time the planet is actually getting lighter because it's losing more gas than it is gaining solid mass but the point is that what it's losing is gas and what it's gaining is solid mass so we're worried about sea levels rise but over the course of time there has been more and more land and less and less water on this planet with all the hydrogen we've lost to space so far since the planet was new we've actually lost 25 percent of the original oceans we're down to 75% of our original oceans as it is. You know, that's a fascinating thing to, to understand. However, if we put it into context today in our climate change discussion, I think what we have to always talk about with climate change is what period are we talking about? For example, with Al Gore, he's talking about tea time next Tuesday, we're all going to be under 10 feet of water, <laughs> right? But Which is, of course, a total lie again, and, and I just made that up. <laughs> and secondly, I mean, if you're talking climate change, you could be talking climate change between now and 100 years ago or 100 years in the future, or you could talk about climate change 100 million years ago. So when people talk about, well, let's recap, greenhouse effect, let's stop talking about the greenhouse effect, let's stop comparing the Earth to Venus, and when we say climate change, let's define our period. All the current science, so-called science, which is really politics about climate change, boil down to the last 150 years when we've been burning fossil fuels. And in terms of Earth's lifespan compared with a human lifespan, 150 years to Earth is like 47 seconds in a human lifetime. So we're doing all this reacting to all, all this change and everything and looking at trends and you know if you went outside on on a summer morning and you watched your thermometer for a period of six seconds and you saw that thermometer tick up a tenth of a degree during that six seconds you could do the math on that and you say wow that's a that's that's a degree a minute and then you could do further do the math and say the world's going to be boiling by noon (laughs) based on that trend because it's too short a time period 
to really draw any conclusions about what where the what the trend is. Well, Christopher Moncton talked about that too when he said, like, what part of the hockey stick graph are you looking at? Or, yeah. or the temp- temperature graph are you looking at to come to your conclusions? Yeah. And all of the IPCC communists are picking the last 50 years or something like that and yeah. just and, and ignoring everything else yeah. for their own political it's, purposes. It's Brownian motion. It's not climate change. Uh, yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, yes, Brownian motion, the mo- movement of atoms themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they're, they're just normal changes in the climate. The things get hot and things get cold over the course of time, but you can't talk about climate change in terms of decadal temperatures or even century temperatures. You have to look at many thousands of years to really see what a significant trend what is. What we're I mean, really seeing in the short term would be better called weather, wouldn't it? It's weather. Yeah. I always <laughs> like weather. to talk about when I'm talking to my friends about climate change, as we often don't do, uh, <laughs> uh, that to consider that, I think it was, now you can correct me on this because you've seen more uh, uh, up on it than I am, but 10,000 years ago at this very spot, there was a mile of ice over our heads. Because uh, we thousand, yeah. Because we're in the middle of a great. Eleven thousand four hundred years ago, the, yeah. the peak was about eighteen thousand years ago. Right. So, and I mean, then it started dis- disappearing. We've been in an interglacial period for eleven thousand four hundred years now. An interglacial period with Milankovitch type cycles. Basically, on a hundred thousand year cycle, we have about, on average, about ninety thousand years of glaciation and about ten thousand years of interglacial period. Now, the interglacial period can expand out to. 20,000 years, but it's roughly a 90-10 or, or 80-20 proposition where most of it's glaciation and the interglacial period is the short period of time in between. And it all has to do with where the Earth is in its 100,000-year cycle of eccentricity. And basically, at 11,400 years, this particular interglacial period, the Holocene interglacial period in which we live, is getting pretty long in the tooth. We should be worried about glaciers coming back, not so much about global warming. You have to remind people every now and then that we are in the middle of an ice age right now today we're no in, we're not in the middle of an ice age. yes it's an interglacial period in an ice age right an ice age goes on for hundreds of thousands or millions yes. of years yes. okay actually tens of millions of years if you look at ice ages here these are ice ages on this chart okay you got the manganine snowball earth and you've got the sturgeon and minoan the la- the last one was the Karoo ice age these things last for tens of millions of years of course yes the current ice age is two and a half million years old this this ice age in which we live is just getting started but you just but you just confirmed what i just said we are in the middle or we are in an ice age. We are age. in an ice age. You can't say middle because you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know when it's going to end. All right. Yeah, exactly. And, and as a matter of fact, the, the true condition of the Earth, even if you were going to average out the Earth's condition, it would be that there would be no ice at the poles. Quite often, yes. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt for fun, gentlemen, but long-range sensors have picked up something interesting. Concentrated mass of oxygen and hydrogen. Lots of animal and plant life. An M-class planet? No, that's the interesting part. We're entering visual range. That's great. What is it? It's an ocean. According to these readings, it's bigger than the Atlantic and Pacific combined. What's holding it together? Looks like there's some sort of containment field keeping it from dissipating. Take us in closer, Tom. Any idea how the ocean came into existence? In my experience, it's a unique phenomenon. Riga? There are several theories. 
Our clerics teach that the ocean was a divine gift from the creators to protect and sustain us. But in my opinion, the most plausible explanation is that the ocean formed naturally, much the same way that a gas giant does. Makes sense. Unfortunately, our limited knowledge of the phenomenon has created a few problems. What do you mean? The ocean's losing containment. Hydro volume has decreased more than 7% in the last year alone. Any idea what's causing it? No. To make a thorough study, we'd need to explore the ocean center, where I believe the gravitational currents are fluctuating. Well, gentlemen, we're a little early, aren't we? <laughs> Not that it matters. Welcome to Howell Manor. Mr. Howell built a real nice hut, didn't he, Skipper? So did the others, Gilligan, but it just took one little disaster to leave them homeless. Uh, what disaster are you talking about? <laughs> That's why we stopped by, Mr. Howell. We wanted to talk to you about the community hut. Now, if we can just work together like we did before, we can rebuild it before the rough weather sets in. <laughs> you and your rough weather. I like rough weather. I welcome rough weather. May I say, Captain, that this place is built to withstand anything. You may think it is. Yeah, Mr. Howell, you may think it quiet, is. Quiet, Gilligan, quiet. I'll handle this. I assure you, Captain, this place is a veritable fortress. Gathering clouds are clear indication that a tropical storm of considerable fury may be expected shortly. Coast Guard warnings have been issued to small craft in the area. So now we're going to get back to the conversation on supercontinents, these huge masses of land that pretty well stick together as one unit. Mark um, Twain has been quoted as saying, buy land because they're not making it anymore. Well, that's not true because more and more <laughs> land is being made on this planet all the time. If you look back to the earliest days of when there was land on planet Earth, the original supercontinent was called Ur, spelled U-R. By today's standards, Ur would have been a, a large island. There's also a city in near um, Iraq, or in yeah, current day Iraq. Lies, uh, what is it, part of Madagascar. And you know, It was actually a very small landmass, but it was the only landmass there was on the planet at the time. Don't forget we had, we had a third more ocean then because we've lost 25% of our ocean. So there was a lot more water on the planet back then. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Ur poked its head up through the surface of the water and became the first uh, official supercontinent there was possibly a supercontinent before that it's speculative they call it valbara if it existed and the problem with supercontinents is that the earth the earth's crust is constantly in motion it's like a big ball of dough that keeps getting balled up and rolled out and balled up and rolled out repetitively and things get turned over this is why we have oil fields that were formed on land that are now like thirty thousand feet underwater and why we have salt deposits that were formed by oceans drying up so they were the the seabeds of these oceans were once deep underwater and now they're like the utah salt flats is four thousand feet above sea level um so there's a lot of up and down of land masses and people talk about um sea level changes what they don't consider is that it's not really the sea levels that are changing it's the land levels that are changing and if you're standing on the shore and the water's coming up further and further on the shore, it may seem to you like sea levels are rising, and maybe they are. But chances are it's, it's maybe the land you're standing on is sinking. But 
Over the course of time, we've had uh, several supercontinents. Ur was the first one. It was followed by Kennerland, which was bigger than Ur. And the next one was Columbia, which was bigger than, than Kennerland. Uh, Rodinia uh, came after Columbia. And then the most recent one that people are probably familiar with was Pangaea. Now, Pangaea um, was a supercontinent that... Uh, basically consisted of pretty much all the land we have today and it split into two masses one was the northern hemisphere that they called laurasia that are present day northern hemisphere continents and the other one was the southern hemisphere continents that we know today uh, and they called that gondwana land and by some definitions laurasia and gondwana land were themselves supercontinents but pangaea was the last real supercontinent now with all this movement uh, we talked about the pacific ocean being filled in uh, plate tectonics um, subduction zones because basically the pacific plate is sliding down under the philippine the uh, indian and uh, eurasian plates so the Pacific plate is sliding down underneath those other plates as the Pacific Ocean disappears, and the day will come when, when the Americas are going to meet up with, uh, with Asia, and, and places like Hawaii and Japan and a lot of these other South Seas islands are just going to be crushed out of existence. So, uh, And it's going to take a long time for that to happen. But um, Let's hope Kim Jong-un is alive at the time. Yeah, these, these are... <laughs> but these things massively these these tectonic events have massive profound effects on earth's climate and one of the big things that happens around the time of formation and breakup of supercontinents one of the big things that happens is what is called large igneous provinces okay and a large igneous province, or LIP for short, I have a definition here of a large igneous province. It says, large igneous provinces are magmatic provinces with aerial extents uh, greater than 0.1 million square kilometers, igneous volumes greater than 0.1 cubic million cubic kilometers, and maximum lifespans of about 50 million years uh, that have intraplate tectonic settings or geochemical affinities and are characterized by igneous pulses of short duration, 1 to 5 million years, during which a large proportion, greater than 75% of the total igneous volume, has been in place. You got that? Yeah. Yeah? Want me to repeat it for your <laughs> listeners? Yeah. I can see I, your I was writing up. it down. I can see listeners' eyes glazing over already. So let's simplify what a lip is, what a large igneous province is. Um, with supercontinents, especially when they start to break up, uh, the Earth's crust is literally torn asunder, and, and these things happen over a period of uh, several million years, typically, and, and, and it can happen in different ways. You can get multiple volcanoes, uh, or you can get basically holes in the Earth's surface where it's like punching a hole in a tube of toothpaste and then squeezing the ends of the toothpaste where things just bubble up out, and it's magnets like lava coming to the surface. The most recent three large igneous provinces were the Siberian Traps, the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province, CAMP or CAMP for short, and the Deccan Traps. Now, the Siberian Traps, of course, are, are in uh, Russia, uh, and they formed back around the end of the uh, Permian period uh, near the Permian-Triassic boundary, and coincidentally, there was a mass extinction event back then, too. And if you look at... If you look at uh, things like these large igneous provinces, they pump so much, uh, not just greenhouse gas into the air, the Siberian traps pumped, and it's hard to tell because the geological record obscures some of this stuff, but the Siberian traps 
pumped something on the order of 100 trillion to 200 trillion metric tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. They also pumped in about 13 uh, trillion tons of, uh, of chlorine. Um, and various other gases, hydrogen, uh, sulfide, and, and, and various other types of gases. Some of these gases have a cooling effect. Uh, sulfates tend to cool the planet, whereas uh, the methane and, uh, and, and CO2, which are the predominant gases, tend to warm it up. But they also basically toxify the atmosphere with so much of this stuff going into the atmosphere and the oceans. If we were to assume that all the fossil fuel deposits that we are know of on earth today if if we were to assume that they're pure carbon and that that carbon could all be combined with oxygen to form co2 we could put into the atmosphere approximately 10 percent of what the siberian traps alone did that's amazing 10 percent of what the siberian traps alone did now the siberian traps were one big factor in creating the Permian-Triassic mass extinction event. Uh, but the other problem was Pangea spanned from pole to pole, okay, and it cut off the flow of ocean currents. And back at that time, the ocean stagnated. You didn't have uh, the Gulf Stream and La Nina and El Nino and all these sorts of... There were no ocean... Like the ocean currents, it, it, it basically became too still. Kind of like a giant pond. Climate <laughs> became too stable for too long. Hmm. There wasn't enough climate change to shake up the ocean. The ocean stagnated. The oxygen all got depleted by things living in it. And something like 95% of marine species perished because the ocean wasn't getting shaken up enough. So climate change can be good. If you Sounds want, more if, like it's if, necessary. If you want, oh, climate change is good, yes. Stopping climate change triggers a mass extinction event. I look at your graph here, and I see that the Siberian traps and the CIMP were uh, during the Triassic and the Jurassic Mm -hmm. period. Now, people will know the Jurassic period only from the movies, more or less. And so they can recognize the fact that at that time, there was 3,000 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere versus today's 400, I believe you said? Pretty close, yeah. And that's also a great period of plant life. That, That peak... After the camp formed, that peak in the Jurassic period is right about 2,500 parts per million. And calculations I did said that if we were to take all the carbon in fossil fuel deposits that we know of today, if we were to take all that carbon and combine it with oxygen and convert it into CO2, we could boost Earth's atmosphere right back up. I think it would worked out to 2,489 parts per million. So right about where it was in the middle of the Jurassic period, which was a time in which uh, life thrived like never before on Earth. We had giant plants, we had giant animals. Things were just booming in, in the life business. And the average global temperature was thought to be around 25 around degrees? Around 25 degrees centigrade. And where today it is, is what? 12 to 15, somewhere in there. So, you know, 10, 12, 13 degrees higher than today. And, and life loved it. Now, of course, again, I'm going to place myself in the role of devil's advocate. As a man, qua man, I mean man, we are not really interested in the past because it's done. It's history, quite literally. And we're not too interested in whether or not the dinosaurs are going to come back or anything like that. What we're interested in is our shoreline, my property, going to go. Is Fiji, are the Fiji Islands going to be underwater? Eventually, yes. (laughs) yes. Are there going to be devastating storms and those things? And that's the kind of hysteria that we're talking about when we talk about political climate change, right? Exactly. But from you, what what I'm understanding is this pales in comparison 
to the volatile nature of our planet. Exactly. The Siberian traps placed so much magma on the surface of the earth that if the Siberian traps emplacement had been evenly distributed over the entire surface of the earth, uh, it would have been six meters deep, 20 feet deep. The Siberian traps put enough magma on the surface of the earth to coat the entire planet to a depth of 20 feet. It's a lot of magma. It's a lot of magma. That's for sure. The camp, the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province, was nearly as large in emplacement, but it was spread over a much larger area, and it underlies southern Europe, the Mediterranean, North Africa, and the North Atlantic Basin now. And the Deccan traps in India were quite a bit smaller, but there were still significant emplacements. And all these things released far, far more greenhouse gas to the atmosphere than mankind can ever hope to do by burning fossil fuel. So we shouldn't and, and really worry. Life went on. Now there were mass extinction events surrounding some of these, but there were other things that had to do with, with uh, asteroid impacts. Um, and other major climate changes that had to do with formation and breakup of supercontinents, too. But these supercontinents are coming and going all the time. The Earth's crust is constantly in motion. And if we're going to have an intelligent scientific discussion about climate change, we can't talk about 150 years. We have to talk about hundreds of millions of years and look at trends there. Look back and say, well, what happened the last time this situation pertained? Because that's the best roadmap we have to what's going to happen in the future. And yes, there will be changes. We will have severe storms. Um, um, the sea levels are going to rise in some places and fall in others because land, land levels are rising in some places and falling in others and, and huge volumes of of ocean are being transferred from, from one place to another as tectonic plates move around. We shouldn't be fearful of these things. We should be trying to understand them and do what mankind has always done. And rather than try to stop nature in its tracks, we adapt, adapt. to it. Yes. I, but I, we're not trying to adapt. We're trying to stop nature. And that's just scientifically stupid, but apparently it's politically smart. Well, it's, what's very also, also very interesting is that as in these supposed incidences, I should say, the, um, the frequency, supposed frequency of these incidences increase. It's only, again, I'm going to backtrack, it's not only. It's largely in a part due to the fact that man has spread out across the globe and his population is increasing to a great extent only over the last hundred years or so, so that when you see nasty videos of tsunamis killing tens of thousands of people somewhere on the opposite side of the planet or a hurricane devastating an entire city, um, like in Houston or New Orleans or, or things like that, a lot of that is because right now we've got a lot of cameras, yeah. And we got a lot of people. Yeah. And we're in and, places that we didn't live and before. And we're in places exactly. where we shouldn't have built stuff. I mean, we're building real expensive real estate right down to the water's edge. And then when something bad happens, I mean, we built this stuff in harm's way. Well, you know what happens? And, 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 is that and, the government bails you out, gives you insurance to rebuild in the exact same yeah. spot. And then suddenly but, we have a climate but problem. But it's like <laughs> stepping into the road in front of a bus without looking and then blaming the bus for what happened to you. You know, I mean, it's just, and, and, and you're absolutely right. People are starting to move into wilderness areas where they never lived. Look, if what happened with Katrina and, and the, what's the word, is it Harvey in Harvey. Houston? Harvey, yes. Or, or Hurricane Sandy um, in a few years ago up, up around New York. If those things had happened 400 years ago, there would have been no real estate lost because there was no real estate there to be lost. 
Yes. But those things were still going on, but there was nobody there to see it, so we so, didn't know about it. So it's only going to get worse because man is expanding his footprint on the planet. And, yeah. and not only that, I mean, the coverage, just with everybody with a cell phone these days. Yeah. Every- we're living in places. Yep. We're living in places that we're putting ourselves in harm's way, and then we're surprised when harm hits us. <laughs> you've made me dizzy today <laughs> with all the information that you've given us, Dave. Well, that's for sure, and the hour has rushed by. Thanks again, Dave, for enlightening us on all this. And I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, well, what do I have to worry about what's happened a billion years ago or a million years in the future. But it gives us a perspective. And fortunately, we don't have to wait a million or a billion years for our next broadcast. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I want to thank you for 15 of the happiest years a man ever had. Kirsten, we've been married 20. I know, but the last five years have been a little shaky. (laughs) Folks, let me reassure you. This hut is solid as a rock. It'll withstand anything that Mother Nature has to throw at us. Well, the skipper's right. This hut can stand anything. I mean, look at this construction here. Don't touch anything, Gilligan. Cut the fall down. I'm sorry, skipper. Gilligan, after this disaster... You were in charge of the passengers. Me? What about you? My duty as captain to go down with the hut.